Hello and welcome to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. In this hour, how does President Joe Biden's first 100 days compare historically to other presidents? How likely are his proposals to be adopted? I'm Doug Becker. Presidents are often historically judged based on their accomplishments of their first 100 days in office. U.S. President Joe Biden just passed his 100-day mark. On today's show, we will discuss how the current administration's record compares to historical records. Our guest is Jeremy Surrey, professor in the Department of History and the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. He holds the Matt Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at UT Austin. He is the author of The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office and Foreign Policy Breakthroughs, Cases in Successful Diplomacy. Jeremy, thank you very much for joining us. I always enjoy uh, being on your show. The pseudo State of the the Union address, the address to Congress on Wednesday, kind of marked these these hundred days. And you're in Texas, so one of your senators, Ted Cruz, described the speech as boring but radical. How accurate is that in describing the first hundred days of the Biden presidency? Well, as with most statements by Ted Cruz, it's uh, half wrong and half self-serving. <laughs> there is a little truth in what he said, which is that Biden is somewhat boring, uh, but that boring nature to Biden is what many, the vast majority of Americans by most polls find calming. After four years of daily chaos, when those of us who are scholars like, like you and I, uh, Doug, have, have felt like we're experiencing five years worth of change and crises in a particular day, um, for so many people to have a steady hand, someone who is less about drama, less about yelling, and more about bringing people together and trying to calmly address problems and concerns that we share, uh, that's refreshing. It's, it's almost intoxicatingly refreshing, which is why it's so hard for uh, people like Ted Cruz who want to attack the president to, to attack him. They, they look like they're provocateurs. Um, and I think Biden's speech uh, that you referred to so well uh, conveyed that. Um, it, it was not a John F. Kennedy, you know, we're going to pay any price, bear any burden kind of speech. It was more a Franklin Roosevelt fireside chat. I'm going to talk to you as a father figure, and I'm going to help you as a country come together. And that's why Ted Cruz is, is just completely wrong when he calls it radical. Uh, there are some major big programs that Biden's talking about, some big changes, and many of them are traditional liberalism in, in an FDR, Lyndon Johnson mode, but they're not radical. Uh, Joe Biden is showing that they're American apple pie. And we can disagree on those, but they're not radical programs. They're programs with a long history. And by definition, something that you've done for a long time is not radical. It's part of who you are. And I know when Biden won the nomination, uh, in particular when he defeated uh, Bernie Sanders for the nomination, a number of progressives uh, were concerned, that they were upset, that this seemed like the defeat of progressivism within the Democratic Party. And here is this old centrist who's going to run you know, has Biden been a centrist and the center has just moved or has he actually moved quite a bit closer to Sanders and Sanders supporters? I I think it's the most important question to ask and you you ask it so well. Um, There are two ways of looking at this and these two perspectives give us a more holistic answer. In terms of the positions and the programs that Joe Biden is advocating for, 
These are far to the left from the programs he himself advocated when he was vice president or during his 30 years in the Senate. Um, he has moved to the left in his programs. Uh, just take the issue of criminal justice or transgender rights. This is a, a, a political figure, Joe Biden, who earlier in his career defended um, maximum security prisons and uh, was not considered a friend of those with transgender uh, interests and concerns. And now those are at the center of his, of his programs trying to reduce uh, what he sees. And I think many Americans see as an unfair criminal justice system that disproportionately imprisons and harms people from certain backgrounds. And as he said in his speech, he wants to stand up and be the person who's there to provide, to, to guard the backs, as he said, of transgender members of our community. So he's moved on those issues substantively. And in some ways, his substantive programs do look like some of the things Elizabeth Warren and Benjamin and, and, um, and Bernie Sanders have been talking about. On the other hand, uh, he's a centrist in the way he approaches these issues. There's the substance of the program, and then there's the way you implement a program. He's not pursuing programs designed to um, break up or divide or undermine the ways American society operates. He's not trying to bust up corporations in the way that Elizabeth Warren talks about that. He's not trying to uh, radically change our institutions. What he's trying to do is in pursuing these changes that he believes are necessary for our country, particularly after COVID and after the challenges to our democracy in the last four years, he's trying to do this in a way that brings people together. And of course, it's not appealing to leaders of the Republican Party, but he's framing these issues and the framing is the serious part of the issues. It's not just uh, propaganda. He's trying to make these issues issues that matter and address the concerns that the vast majority of Americans have. And that's what his speech was all about. So why do we care about criminal justice? Well, not simply because certain groups are being mistreated, but because we all benefit from a better criminal justice system. Why do we care about transgender rights? Not because we only wanna help those in those communities, but we all benefit from a more tolerant, open society. Why do we want aid to those who are suffering from COVID and COVID conditions? And why do we want their communities to have more help? Well, because that benefits us all. So when you frame things in terms of common benefit and you direct your programs in that way, you're not radical. There might be programs you adopt that were also supported by radicals, but that's what liberalism is all about, trying to bring as many people together with programs that serve the interests of people who are not being served in other circumstances. What's interesting is since you're talking about framing, is this really at its core a political issue? And so some of the successes that Biden at least initially seems to have achieved is because he's, he's been able to, to reframe these issues I don't know how much of this is substantive policy. I think of, for example, you know, the giving example is on climate change, where he almost never says the words Green New Deal. Instead, he keeps talking about it being a jobs program, although the policies he's advocating are really not that dissimilar to what Alexander Ocasio-Cortez or, or Ed Markey or, you know, the proponents of the Green New Deal uh, would have wanted. So is really the key difference between the way the progressive wing, what they might want, and what Biden is delivering on, basically a political question about how he's framed the issue or how much of it is substantive? I think it's substantive in, 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 in all ways. The, the framing is, of course, also political. Everything is politics, right? Uh, but it's substantive because you're right that many of the elements of his climate uh, program uh, echo things that were in the Green New Deal. But unlike the Green New Deal, he is also explicitly in substance connecting climate change and what we're doing about climate change to jobs, 
for vocational workers in communities that feel they are left out and often are fearful that um, green policies will take away the few jobs they have left. He did this very well in his speech and very sincerely, saying that we are going to pursue uh, a greener economy, but an economy that provides more jobs for Americans, many of whom do not have a college degree. And he's referring to parts of our country that have turned in the direction of Trump and others because these are communities often of, of white citizens who feel they're uneducated and don't have access to the resources that more educated communities have. I, I don't think that's window dressing. That's the substance of what he's, he's about, connecting doing the right thing for the environment with doing the right thing for ordinary citizens. And, and, and that's what politics, the substance of policy is about. I always tell my students, I'm sure you do too, that policymaking is an art and it's putting things together that theoretically in our seminars we wouldn't put together, but that have to be put together in substance to bring people in a democracy together to support programs that are necessary. I know I've been surprised at the agenda, the legislative, the administrative agenda since Biden's inauguration. And I, I would describe it as certainly further to the left than where I thought he would be. Uh, I think you agree. What's motivating that? What's compelling Biden to move more to the left? You know, as a historian, my answer is what we always say, context. We, we like to think uh, that uh, leaders make history. But as Abraham Lincoln said, history makes the leaders. It's not that leaders don't matter. Leaders matter enormously because their job more than anything is to read the moment and understand the moment and apply the often limited tools they have to that moment. And that's where I think Joe Biden's experience matters so much here. Whether you like him or not, this is someone who's been around a long time and thought a lot about what's happened to American society in the last 30 to 40 years. He sees how different this moment is from 20 years ago and therefore how the tools we need to use have to be different. He would not be pursuing the policies he's pursuing today if he had been elected president instead of Barack Obama in 2008. Uh, but we're in a very different world in 2021 than we were in 2008, 2009. And certainly one of the areas where he has been um, most progressive, um, most to the left is the notion, and so many people have noted this, that the if the era of big government ended under Clinton, the era of big government has returned under um, uh, under uh, Joseph Biden. Is this driven by our experience over the course of the last 14 months because of COVID? I think in large part it is. It's not entirely driven by that. You could argue that the the high point for the argument that government is the problem, not the solution, is of course Ronald Reagan's presidency. And Ronald Reagan's success is forcing Democrats to adopt that position, which as you pointed out so well, is articulated by Bill Clinton himself. He's a Democrat who echoes Reagan saying, uh, the era of big government is over. Uh, and he reduces the budget and Bill Clinton actually runs a budget surplus, people forget that. Um, but already in the early 2000s, you begin to see real concerns about that as inequality grows in American society. And we see the challenges of holding our democracy together with such gaping inequality. And I think the problems of inequality in our society that have been growing, that have been leading to anger among multiple communities, not just minority communities, of course, uh, those then were multiplied very much over and put into our in our faces, becoming undeniable with COVID. When you look at um, how vulnerable communities suffered so much more, how those who had access to jobs, like you and I, who are so fortunate to have jobs where we can work largely from home, 
and we have access to what we're using now, Zoom and electronic uh, digital communications. Some people in, in frontline jobs don't have access to that. They get paid less and they're harmed in these moments when they're needed most. Um, and so I think that's that's significant. I'll, I'll tell a little story here from Texas uh, that's, that's relatively, um, I think, striking. Um, we, of course, it's an, a, a problem in addition to COVID. We lost power for a week uh, a few months ago. And uh, it's strange because we produce more energy in Texas than in Saudi Arabia, but yet because we have an antiquated uh, grid, an antiquated delivery system for that energy because government hasn't invested it and has left it to private producers to manage their own grid. Imagine having private people manage our highways, right? Um, uh, we couldn't deliver in a, in a mild storm by Midwestern standards, we couldn't deliver uh, energy. Well, just uh, today, a, a poll came out uh, from the Texas Tribune and the University of Texas, uh, which showed that 80% of Texans now believe that the state government should step in. 80% of Texans should step in and use state resources and state regulatory power to improve the electrical grid. I guarantee you that poll was exactly the opposite 14 months ago. But the combination of the electrical uh, catastrophe with COVID has, I think, even convinced many mainline conservatives in Texas that, you know what, at least in some areas, we need more government. Maybe we still don't want the government coming after our guns, but we must have more government activity to keep us healthy and to keep the lights turned on. And, and that's a big change from where we were a few years ago. And that is the story of COVID and everything we've experienced the last 14 months. You listen to Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. We're discussing President Joseph Biden's first 100 days with Jeremy Surrey of the University of Texas, Austin. Obviously, President Biden faces a Congress that is going to be a bit more hostile than what he's seen over the, the first 100 days when he's achieved most of this via executive actions and at least you know, one you know, piece of legislation that, you know, the COVID relief without the threat of a filibuster. In a speech, President Biden had a broad sweeping agenda. How's Congress going to respond to this? Well, that's the, the key question, right? Um, I think you're going to see different kinds of responses from different groups. Uh, Biden's strategy, and we'll only know if it works in a few years' time when Scholar Circle does its uh, major analysis of this, as only you can, um, his strategy is to set the agenda, to be the agenda setter, right? That's the, the phrasing we would use as scholars, right? Instead of leaving this to Congress to come to him with bits and pieces, he's setting the agenda. He's setting a high bar. And he's setting a high bar that he knows is broadly popular. Uh, everything he proposed uh, from investment in infrastructure to investment in families, to investment in childcare, has more than 50%, more than 60% in most cases support if you poll people across the country. It doesn't mean it has that support among Republicans. And of course the Senate is divided 50-50, but he's putting out an agenda that is broadly popular and he's forcing the other side, the Republicans, to react to that. He's also trying to hold Democrats together by saying, look, this is what we're about. Instead of coming to me with your individual programs, let's all work toward this. And he knows he's going to have to negotiate, but he's betting that he can use public pressure and the desire the Republicans have to be seen as something other than a do-nothing party. He kept saying in his speech, do something that that will force them to come to him with substantive proposals. So I don't think he's going to get a $2 billion, $2 trillion, excuse me, infrastructure program, but he's going to get something pretty large, I think. Maybe it'll be $1 trillion, maybe it'll be $1.25 trillion, who knows? And, and I think that's part of what he's doing. And then he's going to argue afterwards, look, I didn't get everything I wanted, but I got a lot, and you wouldn't have had that without me. 
And so I think that's what he's doing. I think Congress will give him um, some of what he wants. And I think um, the midterm elections are going to be crucial. Uh, he's hoping to build momentum going into the midterm elections to hold the Senate and hold the House. And if he can do that, then in 2023, then he's really set up to accomplish even more. Now, you said um, you think Congress is going to give him some, you know, some of this. Will any of that Congress be Republican voting for any of these bills? I think he might get a few votes on uh, infrastructure. I think um, there are a lot of senators uh, from uh, Republican or divided, barely Republican states where the infrastructure is uh, very popular. These are programs that Donald Trump, to some extent, had touted. Remember, he promised an infrastructure bill. And uh, for those in those states who want to be able to deliver jobs to their own citizens, infrastructure is the best way to do it. So West Virginia, I mean, everyone talks about Joe Manchin as the most conservative sort of median uh, turning point Democratic vote, number 50 in the Senate, but also Senator Caputo uh, on the uh, Republican side. Um, she's already talking to the White House. Who knows where that'll go? But West Virginia always benefits <laughs> from infrastructure. Alaska, Lisa Murkowski, Maine, Susan Collins. Um, so I think he'll get some, whether he'll get 60 votes, I don't know. But if he can get three or four Republicans and then do this through reconciliation, uh, I think he might have a good deal. One of the things since we've talked about infrastructure that I find particularly fascinating uh, with Biden is the way that he's reframed infrastructure. I had a friend who always said, whenever you hear a politician talk about infrastructure, what they're saying is, I want to fix your potholes. I want to fix the bridge. But when he's talking about issues like um, like high-speed you know, broadband uh, as an element of infrastructure and you know, job training programs, you know, et cetera. But actually, specifically when I think of, you know, questions of broadband, COVID clearly exposed a digital divide in this country and one that had fairly profound implications. Is that what's driving this question is really about sort of a, the geographic digital divide and how much is this attempt to reframe infrastructure as a much broader concept than most of us usually think of as infrastructure. Has he successfully reframed that, or is, is that is that a political battle that we're expecting to see come forward? It's, it's a great question. I, I think um, over the last 10 to 20 years, people who study these issues, whether they're scholars of uh, sociologists, urban historians, and others, have made the case that infrastructure is something broader than potholes. That where in the past, uh, the economy of a city or a community depended on the quality of the roads, of course, the roads still matter, but now the quality of your internet connections matters enormously. Um, now the quality of your drinking water, which you can't take for granted anymore, matters enormously, right? Not, none of us are running to move to Flint because of the water there, right? It's not it's just the opposite, right? So I think the concept of infrastructure has broadened, but that had not made its way into the political vernacular until the last year or two. And I think, again, that's where COVID has opened policy space that didn't exist before, because people have come to see to, to realize just what, what we just talked about, right, which is that actually, well, it's not really the pothole that matters so much. It's can I get on the internet uh, and do my job or have my 10-year-old actually get some kind of education when they can't get out of the house? Can I get telemedicine? Right. If I'm in a rural community and I'm not going to be able to get to a doctor because of COVID and I need more doctoring, I need, can I use telemedicine? So these luxury goods of the past have become necessities of today. And infrastructure at its basis is what are the common resources everyone needs to be able to survive in our society? And I think we reached that point with um, 
with the internet. And it's also interesting, the, the point Biden has made about education too. Um, it's very hard to survive in our society without some college education now. And that's why the community college point is such an important, we don't have to become a scholar, you know, you don't have to become a, a useless intellectual like you and I, I mean, you could actually, you know, go to community college and learn how to do something like you know, auto mechanics or whatever. And I think that's an important part of this too, that that's an infrastructure, the United States, and he mentioned this in his speech, it's a very good historical point. We made high school the infrastructure of our society in the 19th century, right? We, when we made high school public and we made it a necessity, uh, a requirement. And we're moving to a point now where you could say some college is probably in that same space, that that's the infrastructure of a modern society. That's why we've really kind of been talking about how much Biden could appeal to the middle, maybe the Trump voters, et cetera. But I'm particularly interested um, as well in how progressive Democrats are going to respond you know, to Biden. I remember during the campaign that when Sanders dropped out of the race and, and ends up endorsing Biden, there was an assumption that were three specific campaign, you know, proposals that the Bernie Sanders had made and that Biden was going to have to endorse at least one, if not two of those. And the three were Medicare for all, so universal health care, the Green New Deal, and raising the minimum wage to $15 uh, an hour. And I know Biden said he wanted to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, but clearly that, you know, wasn't in the COVID package. It looks like on all three of those, he's not exactly endorsing the progressive position. Does he have a problem on his left where he could see progressives becoming disillusioned because he hasn't gone as far as as they would have liked? I, I don't think so. I, I think he's, he, of course, he hasn't gone as far as many of them uh, like, but he's gone farther than anyone they could imagine in that office right now. And it's very useful for him, actually, if they continue to criticize him and then vote with him. Because the more they criticize him, he, he shows he's not as radical as the radicals, right? Uh, but then he needs their votes. It's the opposite from the game I think Joe Manchin is playing. I think Joe Manchin also wants Biden to succeed. Joe Manchin needs Biden to succeed because if the, if the Democrats lose their bare majority in the Senate, Joe Manchin becomes meaningless. He has power now only because they have a close majority, right? Uh, and the same is true for progressives, especially in the House. If he fails, if the president fails and there's a Republican president, you can pass all the progressive legislation you want in the House. It's not going to go anywhere, right? So um, what is useful for both the, those in the middle and those on the left is to criticize the president for not being enough in their direction and then grudgingly vote for him or make it look like they're grudgingly voting for him. That makes him look more moderate. And what they're telling their constituents is, look, we're getting a lot for you, not everything. And certainly those on the left very legitimately can say, especially after 100 days, that uh, this president in, in 100 days has done more for progressive substantive change uh, than any president since LBJ or FDR has done for progressive interests in 100 days. That's not the whole loaf of bread, and they're never going to get the whole loaf of bread, but that's a lot. And why would you not want to support that? Why would you not want to support that? You know, having you on as a historian, I'm going to ask you a question that's completely unfair for historians um, to put these first hundred days into some sort of a historical context about how how consequential these first hundred days are going to look, you know, to historians, say, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. So with the important caveats, it is far too soon to be able to make that that projection. I'm going to ask you to how consequential does the first hundred days of the Biden presidency appear to you? Well, I have to first reiterate your very important and well-founded caveat that we don't know. I mean, the first thing a historian tells you is uh, 
things matter because of what happens after them. <laughs> um, so, so with that said, I think we will see these 100 days as incredibly consequential for two reasons. Uh, they have created change on the ground that will be difficult to reverse no matter what happens. Um, more has been done in 100 days through the relief package, the first relief package, to address child poverty in the United States and to address uh, inequalities than has been done in a long time. And that will be difficult to reverse uh, going forward. Um, and that we will see that turn up in communities that now have more access to resources than they had before. So that's that's a that's a big that's a big change. I, I think, though, even more significant, it looks like these hundred days have changed the de the debate. It doesn't mean that Biden will succeed in any or all of the packages he's put forward, but the nature of the debate is different. Um, the The Republican Party has been arguing, as you said so well, for ten to twenty years, that the solution to all things is a market. Let the market do this. Right? This is the neoliberal argument, uh, and government should get out of the way. Uh, it, even Republicans are not making that argument now. They, they can't. It's very hard to see that that way forward. And uh, Biden has made the debate a debate about how the government should get involved with the presumption that it will be getting involved in some way or another. And that's big. Uh, the, the scholarship on the New Deal makes a similar point, right? Uh, it, the difference between Hoover and Roosevelt in the first 100 days, there are some major pieces of legislation, but is that Roosevelt changes the discussion from why is this the fault of the economy to how can we as a society come together with the government's help to do something about it? That's really what the, the ethos of the New Deal is. How can we save democracy? And that's the, the final point. I'll say, um, I, I think Biden has restored some faith for a large part of the electorate, not everyone, obviously, that government and that leaders can be helpful and can care. Uh, the reason it's hard for Republicans to attack Biden is because People don't hate him, and they actually do kind of trust him. Uh, and he he's he's built that trust, uh, and and if he can keep that going, that's an enormously powerful thing. Well, thank you very much. We've been discussing President Biden's first hundred days, what's been accomplished, what are the challenges ahead, and where historically this might rank in terms of how consequential these hundred days have been. Our guest has been Jeremy Surrey, a professor in the Department of History and LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. He holds the Matt Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs. He's the author of The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, and Foreign Policy Breakthroughs, Cases in Successful Diplomacy. Jeremy, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on.